Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. This morning, we get to study one of the most crucial events in the history of God's relationship with people. Indeed, it's one of the most crucial events in the history of the world. And I'm talking about the event before us in Acts 9. It's the story of a man named Saul or Paul in his encounter with this Jesus, the Son of God. This event is so important that Luke, our author of Acts, who is known for his brevity, for being concise and to the point, nevertheless gives us this same story in detail three different times in Acts, chapters 9, 22, and 26. And so there's something about this story that Luke doesn't want us to miss. We're sneaking up on a a turning point of sorts in the book of Acts. Luke is beginning to wrap up his emphasis on Peter and the early church in Israel. And so he's preparing us now, foreshadowing for what comes next by introducing us to Saul, a man and his mission surrounding the early church to the ends of the earth that will dominate the rest of the book of Acts. You remember, don't you, way back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would bless all the nations through his descendants, the Jews. And this promise was fulfilled in Jesus. Fulfilled because Jesus obeyed God, his Father, and because he loved God and people so much that he died for the sins of all who believe in him and call on his name. And after Jesus keeps his father's promise, after Jesus dies and rises from the dead, he tells his disciples in Matthew 28 to get busy. He commissions them to teach all nations about God's promise kept in Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And Acts 9 just continues the story this morning. God chooses a man in Acts 9 who will be chiefly responsible for carrying out Jesus' commission by proclaiming to all nations that God's promise to Abraham has been fulfilled, that all nations now are indeed blessed. All may choose eternal life, eternal intimacy, if you will, with God Himself, because God kept His promise to make things right again between us and Him. God kept His promise to Abraham in Jesus Christ. Before we read the story in Acts 9, I'd like to share some background on Saul. Sort of an introduction to Saul. Who who is this man that God chose with such a pivotal and meaningful commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? Who is he? I'd like to look at three things in particular in introducing Paul. First one, Paul states himself, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. What was Tarsus like? Tarsus was the capital of Cilicia, a province or state in ancient Asia Minor, today's Turkey. Tarsus was a city of about a half a million people during Paul's day. And the city had been around for a while. It had been a fortified trading center 
for over 2,000 years. The city lay along a river called the Sidnes River, just 10 miles north of the Mediterranean, and a great international highway ran right through Tarsus. God has a way of putting people on great international highways. Paul called Tarsus at one time no ordinary city, and he was right. Indeed, the great Julius Caesar himself visited the city, and the residents of the city called it, nicknamed it, Juliopolis, city of Julius, in his honor. Six years after Julius Caesar, history records a, a very famous rendezvous between Mark Antony and his good-looking girlfriend Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen. Apparently, Cleopatra was rowed up the Sidnes River into Tarsus dressed as the goddess Aphrodite. The historian Strabo wrote that the citizens of Tarsus were fervent in the pursuit of culture. Tarsus was an important educational center in the ancient world. Many of you already are beginning to conclude, I think, it, it's no surprise then that Paul's letters in the New Testament are full of images from Greek and Roman world and culture where he once lived. And certainly God used those building blocks to, to help make Paul relevant and to help him communicate and interact with his Jewish-Gentile environment. He knew their cultural pictures. And yet, it, it would not be accurate to call Paul a Hellenistic Jew. A Hellenistic Jew is, is one who embraced and welcomed and loved Greek and Roman culture. That's not Paul. Paul's Jewish heritage was of great importance to him. Twice he mentions, with pride I think, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin being one of only two tribes that remained faithful to God after King Solomon died. Paul defends his Jewish heritage against critics in Corinth. Paul writes, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. And Paul writes to the Philippians that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, he says. One leading scholar notes that Hebrew used in that idiom, Hebrew born of Hebrews, specifically refers to a Jew who stridently tried to maintain traditional Hebrew culture rather than giving in to the culture of Alexander the Great, to the the temptations of Greek and Roman culture, the temptation to worship self and sports and entertainment and pagan gods and idols. Gee, I wonder what that temptation is like. Indeed, in Galatians 1.14, Paul says he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Paul then really grew up in an environment in some way that was similar to Jesus, who grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was a city in Galilee, Galilee also known as Galilee of the Gentiles. 
Now, unlike Tarsus, Nazareth was tiny, and it was staunchly Jewish. But it, too, laid along another great international trade route. And just a stone's throw across the valley laid one of Herod's cities, Sepphoris, a city that was Greek to its core. And I think it's fair to say then that both Jesus and Paul knew what it was like to protect and to fight for their own religious heritage in the midst of a culture teaching things quite different. Finally, we know that Paul was a Roman citizen. We'll see in the weeks and months to come that Paul's citizenship helps him several instances during his life. It also explains why Paul went by two names, Saul and Paul. It's a very common teaching out there, or maybe you've just thought of it yourself. It's what I used to think. It's, well, Saul was his pre-Christian life, and then after he was converted, he changed his name to Paul. Um, Not so. And it's not because Paul is the Roman or Greek form of the name Saul. Something else that's been out there. They're two different names entirely. The reason the man was sometimes called Saul and sometimes called Paul is because all Roman citizens were required to have three names from birth. Today we might call them our first, middle, and last name or family name. We know two of Paul's names. The only one we don't know is his family name. Two of his names given at birth were Shaul, or Saul, his Hebrew first name, and then Paulus, his Latin or Roman middle name. And so if Paul were like other Roman citizens in his day, he would go by whatever name best suited the culture or language or community or people that he was with. Luke puts it this way in Acts 13, verse 9. Luke says simply, Saul, who was also called Paul. Paul's Jewish heritage is also seen in the second piece of his background I'd like to share with you this morning. Three times Paul calls himself a Pharisee in the New Testament. In short, Pharisees knew the Scriptures very, very well. And their passion was to interpret and apply Scripture to everyday living. As Christians, that sounds familiar. Yes, that's what we strive to do too, isn't it? Apply God's Word to our life and circumstance. Now certainly, Jesus makes crystal clear that many Pharisees at least missed by a mile a correct interpretation and application of Scripture, especially when it came to such things as associating with sinners, for example. Pharisees had misinterpreted Torah to mean that sinners needed to be avoided at all costs because you wouldn't want to get dirty getting near them. Jesus correctly interprets Scripture to mean we must seek out, love, associate with sinners, love our enemies into the kingdom of God. But even if Pharisees messed up in interpreting and implying the Scriptures accurately all the time, they nevertheless recognized that God's Word is a light onto our path, and that we should look to God's Word as a guide for our life and witness. And so that was Paul's background. That's 
That's who Paul says he still is, way at the end of his ministry in Acts 26, when he uses present tense and says, You know, Herod, I am a Pharisee. What he means by that is he uses that same method of applying Scripture to life and holding Scripture up as God's special revelation to people and to pursue righteousness. And certainly Paul did those things over and over and over again. Paul studied under the Pharisee Gamaliel. Who remembers Gamaliel? Good. I hope it rings a faint bell. He's the Pharisee, remember, serving on that Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. We heard from him a few weeks ago when that Sanhedrin was trying to figure out what to do with those apostles, remember? And it was Gamaliel's advice in Acts 5 that won out in the Sanhedrin that day. When Gamaliel told the Sanhedrin about the apostles, leave these men alone. Because it's possible you'll find yourself fighting against God. We'll come back to that in a minute. But for now, the one background piece for Paul is that he was a Pharisee who studied the Scriptures under Gamaliel. This makes it, of course, all the more surprising, actually, that Paul ends up pursuing Christians. Why? Because his teacher... His rabbi is the one who said, leave them alone. Leave these Christians alone or you may find yourself fighting against God. It's one of really the significant mysteries in the Bible. How is it that Paul could have deviated so much from Gamaliel? Now today you might say, big deal. A student doesn't necessarily agree with everything his teacher says or does. But that's not the model in the text of what it means to be rabbi and Talmud, what it means to be teacher and student in that day at least. Paul would have desperately wanted to please and desperately wanted to be just like Gamaliel in his interpretation of the word. They must have had some sort of falling out or serious disagreement for Paul to so passionately pursue the opposite of what his teacher had suggested. And so, while Paul was a Pharisee, he really was a radical, rebellious one. Think of a Paul as a rebel Pharisee. It's a pretty good picture, I think. An extreme example of someone who would even work for and encourage the Sadducees, of all people, to treat Christians as harshly as possible. Like we've noted in the past, Pharisees and Sadducees did not see eye to eye. And for Paul to help them to persecute Christians is shocking. He was clearly convinced that this was his mission, even willing to cooperate with Sadducees. What do we have so far? We've got Paul as a Jew, proud of his Jewish heritage, resistant to the Greek and Roman culture around him. And Paul is a rebel Pharisee going against the advice of his teacher Gamaliel by persecuting Christians. One more background piece before we take a closer look at Acts 9 in particular. Apparently, Paul was not all that impressive in person. His opponents in Corinth said just that. In person, he is unimpressive. 
calling Paul's physical presence, his bodily presence, when you would meet and interact with Paul, they called that weak. Now, the Greek word for weak, asthenes, it means weak or feeble, but it also means sick or sickly, referring to some physical disability. Luke, the doctor, uses that same word, asthenes, to describe the lame man that God heals through Peter in Acts 4, remember? And Paul also writes about a thorn in the flesh he has. We don't know exactly what that thorn is. Many shelves and many seminaries contain many different theories of what Paul's thorn was. One of the better theories seems to be that it had something to do with Paul's eyesight. Some have suggested he suffered from cataracts in his eyes. We'll see in a minute, while that possibility at least is intriguing based on what happens to Paul in Acts 9. As a brief aside, it's interesting, isn't it, that one of Paul's traveling companions, Luke, is a doctor? Maybe that's not just a coincidence. Maybe uh, Paul chose Luke or God had Luke show up as a companion in part at least because Luke was a doctor. Paul got to have along with him a sort of traveling physician constantly on call, perhaps to help Paul with his thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. There's little question remaining in most scholars' minds that Paul was indeed a sick man. One more note concerning Paul's thorn in the flesh, and then we'll take a look at the text. Paul tells us why he thinks God gave him his thorn in the flesh. He says in 2 Corinthians that God gave him this thorn in the flesh to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations God had given to him. So perhaps Paul struggled a bit with pride. And this fits nicely, doesn't it, with a man willing to go against the teachings of his teacher, willing to go against the mainstream pharisaical teaching to respect life. Maybe he had an issue with pride. Finally, while even his critics agree that Paul could write a good letter, there's some question as to whether Paul was all that polished a speaker especially by Greek standards, which philosophically held speaking and debate and diatribe. They held it to a very high level. Paul himself admits in 2 Corinthians, I may not be a trained speaker. Could be why he wrote so much. Who knows? Okay, we've got Saul, a rebellious, perhaps prideful Jewish Pharisee, raised in the middle of a Greek-Roman culture that he resisted and whose mission in life was to zealously protect the traditions of his fathers handed down from Moses by persecuting Christians. With that in mind, let's take a look at the stories in Acts 9, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats that breathing out in original Greek can also be rendered in English like muttering under his breath, walking around. I tell you, Christian, go kill everyone. He's mut. I mean, this man, 
is driven in his vehemence against Christians. Saul was, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. There's his cooperation with Sadducee. Someone first century who knows Pharisee, Sadducee, reads from Luke's account. He went to the high priest and they begin to ask, what? He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. That was miles away along another international trade route. Maybe that's why Paul wants to go there. Asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Get those Christians away from that international trade highway. We don't want that message to get out. And as Paul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now this brief exchange between Saul and Jesus, as brief as it was, quite frankly turns Saul's world upside down. He will never be the same. How could such a brief exchange, do you suppose, get to someone so passionately persecuting Jesus? I mean, Paul hears from someone who identifies himself from, as Jesus, and he has no question that it's something he must do. I'm sure the power of the Holy Spirit was at work, but I wonder if there was more, perhaps, that helped convince Saul to do a 180 degree with the passion of his life. Here's one suggestion why Paul might have been so affected to change so drastically. Several times in Scripture, we read about God Himself calling out to someone by repeating their name twice. The one other example I'd like to look at with you briefly is when Moses, remember him, encountered God in the burning bush. I came across that uh, this week in my study, and I was just uh, stunned. I started laughing at the similarities between these two stories. One in particular, see what you think. Moses goes to investigate and to stand in a strange light, the light of God's glory coming from a burning bush that isn't burning up. And as that light surrounds him, Moses hears a voice. And it's God. And he calls out to Moses two times. Moses! Moses! I wonder if this Pharisee of Pharisee Saul, who's fervently trying to protect the traditions and laws handed down from Moses as he's lying there on the ground surrounded by a strange heavenly light. It must have been bright because it was noonday. And then he hears his name called twice. Saul! Saul! I wonder if he's got time even to think, wow, this is the story of Moses. At the very least, he might be thinking, holy Moses, what on earth is going on? Right? <laughs> Back to the burning bush. During his encounter with God in the burning bush, 
Moses asks God the question, what is your name? And look at the question Saul manages to ask in Acts 9, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Same question. Isn't that kind of cool? You suppose there's a connection? But look at what happens next. God answers Moses' question by giving Moses his name. Literally, God says, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites, I am sent you. And God identifies himself as the great I am. And now, back at the ranch in Acts, look at the first two words out of Jesus' mouth in response to Paul's question, Who are you, Lord? The first two words Jesus says are, I am. Jesus doesn't answer, My name is Jesus. He doesn't answer simply, Jesus. He says, I am Jesus. In biblical Greek, there are no commas. And we're left to linguistic experts to make educated guesses as best they can according to Greek syntax and rhythm and things way beyond me. They decide where pauses and punctuation should go as they translate it into English. One commentator, a renowned Greek scholar, he punctuates, based on his study of Greek syntax and sentence structures, he punctuates Jesus' remark that way that you see on the screen. I am Jesus. If he's right, with or without the comma, I wonder if that's what Paul heard as he's thinking light, voice, Saul, Saul, I am. When Jesus was on earth, he used I am to refer to himself before. Remember in John 8, one of the clearest statements from Jesus that he is indeed very God. In fact, when he got done saying I am, the people in John 8 picked up stones that were going to kill him, stone him for blasphemy. And now here Jesus is again telling Paul, I am Jesus, is who I am. I wonder if that plays a role in just Paul's dramatic turnaround. He didn't just encounter Jesus that day, but encountered God himself, the great I am in the person of Jesus as, Paul, as Saul is lying there, convinced that he's not only in the presence of Jesus, but also in the presence of the great I Am in the person of Jesus, the next words from Jesus' mouth must have absolutely crushed this rebellious, proud Pharisee who was convinced he was doing God's will in persecuting Christians. Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Not just persecuting people. Not just persecuting Christians. Not just persecuting the followers of Jesus. Persecuting the Son of God and indeed God Himself. What effect would that have on a man dedicated to God's Word and to God? I mean, he must have thought, Oh, no. I've been persecuting the great I Am. I've been 
persecuting God Himself. Oi, Gamaliel was right. He said, leave him alone, or I might find myself fighting against God. Why didn't I listen to him? He was right. I've been fighting against God. Oh, no. And he's thoroughly humbled, humiliated, crushed, I'm sure, as he realizes right there on the ground, what have I done to Stephen and to others? What was I on my way to do? Oh, no. No wonder why after this, as we'll see in a minute, Saul fasts and prays for three days. And as Saul lays there, faced with the hard truth of everything he had stood for in his life in terms of persecuting Christians being dead wrong, as he lays there crushed, Jesus simply says, verse 6, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7, and continuing, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. We learn from one of Luke's other accounts of this episode that they heard the sound, but could not articulate or understand the words. So they heard something, but didn't know the words. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing related to his thorn in the flesh. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Oh, I wish God was this specific with instructions to me sometimes. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street almost gives him an address, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. That would be you. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. <laughs> Ananias is understandably hesitant. You can almost hear him, can't you? Um, <laughs> Lord? Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Tells us the extent of Saul's reputation for persecuting Christians. Damascus is a long way away from Jerusalem. And he has come here. You know, I wonder if Ananias thinks that Jesus doesn't know this. You ever find yourself doing that in your prayer life? or, You know? You see what she's done to me? Are you, well, yeah, that he know. Doesn't stop us from doing that, though, does it? And it's okay. God likes to hear what's on our heart, and this is on Ananias' heart. He doesn't want to go see this guy, let alone help him. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, and the Greek here is an imperative command. I don't know if he's a bit impatient. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! <laughs> this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Two PSs before I'll offer an application for us from the text this morning. One guess what the name Ananias means. What do you think it means? It comes from the Hebrew name Hananiah, which means the Lord shows grace. God sends someone called, the Lord shows grace, to this Pharisee who is crushed because he realizes the horror of what he has done in fighting against the ever-living God himself. And the first words to the man who had persecuted God, murdered his followers, the first words spoken by a man called, the Lord shows grace, our brother Saul. Don't let anyone tell you that the Lord is not gracious. The Lord is gracious indeed. Second P.S. Even though something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he was no longer completely blind, I wonder if the thorn in Paul's flesh nevertheless had something to do with his eyes. I wonder if those scholars that go that route, based on many other texts in the New Testament, if they're right, and again, we don't know for sure, but many lean that way. If they're right, if that had something to do with Paul's thorn, isn't that an amazing reminder for Paul throughout his life and ministry? Reminder of the time he was blinded by God's glory rather than blinded by his own pride. Reminder of the time his pride was broken. What a potent reminder in Paul's later words, don't you think? To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There are several ways that we could go with an application this morning from this crucial event, not only in the Bible, but in all of history. Time says I got one. So here's the one that God has put most on my heart this past week. And it's God wants you. Maybe you're here today <clears throat> and you find yourself reluctant to accept God's invitation to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Maybe like Paul, pride is standing in your way. You don't even like to be asked about it because it offends you in some way. It's too simple. Sometimes Christians feel that way about a call, too. I've struggled with that in the past. It's like, you know, you're just making people decide. Are they really deciding? So sometimes I end up not asking at all. Or maybe your story is like one I often hear. Pastor, you have no idea who I am. You have no idea what I've done. You've no idea the sin struggles in my life. 
I'm sure you haven't heard anything worse. If you knew, if you truly knew me, your invitation, God's invitation to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life, there's no way that invitation is for me. Or maybe you're already a Christian. You have decided to follow Jesus, but it's been little more than a mental decision you made once a long time ago. And you haven't yet fully invested all of you into that decision to follow Him. You're holding back. You're keeping, a, keeping control of some small portion of your life that you just can't seem to give over to Him. That you just don't want to really get over, give over fully to God. Because it's kind of fun to have that for you. And maybe you're thinking, too, there's no way God's invitation to make Jesus my Lord and Savior is for me. Well, I'm here to tell you, based on the text before us, yes way. Listen, if the Lord who shows grace wants a guy like Saul, if God wants a rebellious, murdering, prideful Pharisee like Saul, if God invites him to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of his life, why on earth would he not want you to? I realize that making a decision to follow Jesus is kind of like that decision you've made or some of you may make someday to say, I do, during a marriage ceremony. The real work, fantastic work, but work, of nurturing that relationship comes after. But it has to start somewhere. The decision, that exercise of our free will that we talked about a few weeks ago, it needs to be made. We all need to answer the question. We all need to respond to God's invitation at some point to make Jesus our Lord and Savior. And my question for you on the text this morning, will you, either for the first time or if you've already given your life to God, will you decide to recommit it to God? Will you? If you'd like to do that, if you'd like to commit or recommit your life to Jesus Christ, I invite you to pray along with me. You can do it quietly in your own heart. Would you please bow your heads? Let's pray. Dear God, it's me. I know you know me, all of me. I heard this morning how you chose a man like Saul and how you are inviting me too to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. And I want to accept that invitation and I accept it this morning. I too want to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Please help me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. After the service, in just a minute, there will be people who would like to pray for you down here in the front. I have a badge. How can I pray for you? Hard to miss. If you accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of life this morning, of your life this morning, or if you've recommitted your life to Him, we'd love to hear from you and pray for you and offer our support and encouragement. Or if you'd just like someone to pray for you this morning, please come down. Say hi. And we'd love to pray with you to our God in heaven. I don't do this often, but every once in a while, um, 
God puts it on my heart. I'd love uh, to bless you in God's name this morning before sending you on your way. Would you please stand to receive God's blessing? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace, His shalom. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters. Bless God.